All right, folks, before we get to the main thing, I want to let you know that this episode of Oil & Gas Upstream is made possible by our good friends at Technip FMC. Now, you probably know them for their subsea business, but did you know that Technip FMC is doing fantastic things for the industry at the surface? The latest innovation is called Emission. And Emission will let you monitor and control vapor pressure in real time. To learn more, visit technipfmc.com. Oil and gas production is the union of natural systems with advanced science and complex engineering. Smart people across the globe create this remarkable place we call Upstream, and each day brings a new challenge. This is the Oil and Gas Upstream podcast, where we look at how these systems come together and learn from the people who make it happen. Welcome to Oil and Gas Upstream. I'm Elena Melker, your host. Some of you know me as the former director for oil and gas upstream research at the U.S. Department of Energy. I retired from DOE about a year ago and founded a small consultancy and became a podcast host. But before I introduce our guest, I want to thank Technip FMC, our sponsor for this podcast. And now I want to ask you to do me a big favor by answering a one question survey. How hard can that be? One question. It takes about 10 seconds and the link is in the show notes. In return, we will happily send you some stickers for your your hard hat or your laptop or your friends. So now I want to introduce our guest for today, Elena Melkert, President, Energia Consulting, LLC. Yes, that's right. I'm interviewing myself. Well, not really. Recently, I was invited to give a small presentation and several people asked me for my speech. So I decided, hey, maybe I'll record parts of that speech and present it here. So here we go. I'm often asked to speak as an energy thought leader. Who is an energy thought leader? Why isn't everybody an energy thought leader? We all use energy. We all need energy. We're all paying for energy. Why are there not more energy thought leaders? Actually, right now, the whole world is thinking about energy. Come this winter, some are going to be praying for energy if winter temperatures are low. And this is a very difficult time for those who live in energy poverty. Energy poverty is very real for some people. And with high prices, even more people are going to join the ranks of the energy poor. But let's apply some critical analysis to this question of energy poverty. Oil and gas are not just commodities, just like oxygen is not just a gas. Unlike solar energy, wind energy, nuclear energy, or hydroelectric power, oil and gas are used as a feedstock as well as fuel. And if you've ever had the sad duty of visiting someone in the intensive care unit, You know just how valuable oil and gas are in the manufacturing of low-cost materials for use in gowns, masks, tubing, syringes, tape, bags, just to name a few. When I was 19 years old, OPEC, the Organization of of Petroleum Exporting Countries, imposed an oil embargo on the United States, and they stopped shipping oil to us. In response, the U.S government rationed gasoline. Americans could fill their gasoline tanks if the gasoline if the filling station had gasoline. And it was based on the number on your license plate. 
Odd numbers could fail on odd numbered dates, and even numbers could fail on even numbered dates. I don't know what we would do now with all these vanity plates. I certainly, I guess, the number of my last letter, I don't know. Anyway, so young people would line up uh, their cars in front of the gas station and toss beach balls and play music and dance to pass the time. Um, which was kind of something you needed something to do if you were responsible for keeping the family car filled with gasoline. So this was in 1973 under President Nixon, when Americans were overtly pu- published. Uh, I'm sorry, when Americans were overtly punished by OPEC. OPEC, led by Saudi Arabia, proclaimed this oil embargo targeting the United States in retaliation for the U.S. decision to resupply the Israeli military. At that time, the U.S. was importing more than half the oil it was using every day, and Americans were indeed vulnerable to the possibility of energy poverty. This prompted President Ford to recommend to the Congress the first comprehensive national energy program specifically designed to reduce our dependence on foreign oil. How many of us are old enough to remember those gasoline lines? In 1973, I had no idea that 12 short years later, I would be working for the federal government as a petroleum engineer at the Naval Petroleum Reserve No. 1. There were four Naval Petroleum Reserves and one Naval Petroleum and Oil Shale Reserve. These oil fields were owned by the federal government. The Naval Petroleum Reserve, which was the Elk Hills oil field located outside of Bakersfield, California, was discovered in 1902 by the Navy. Why the Navy? Because the Navy needed to ensure that they would have the oil they needed to defend our country. In 1976, Congress passed the Naval Petroleum Reserves Production Act, authorizing full commercial development of the reserves. A partnership was established with the Standard Oil of California, which later became Chevron, and which owned 20% of the uh, Elk Hills oil field and the Naval Petroleum Reserves were opened up. In 1975, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve was established, and in 1977, the the first shipment of oil was stored there, oil purchased from Saudi Arabia. In 1977, the Department of Energy was established under President Carter, and the crude oil, natural gas, and liquid products produced from the Naval Petroleum Reserves were sold by DOE, at market prices. President Reagan eliminated price controls on oil and natural gas, allowing market forces to set the price for oil and natural gas. Under President George Bush, Congress passed the Energy Policy Act of 1992 with more than two two dozen subtitles on ways to reduce dependence on energy imports, boost renewable energy production, and increase energy efficiency of buildings. DOE established the National Science Bowl in 1991 to increase American energy literacy. We need to understand where our energy comes from, how it's produced, and be conscious about how we use it. President Clinton then used tax incentives and research money to encourage development of renewable energy and reduce reliance on coal and oil by converting to alternatives like natural gas. In 2001, President George W. Bush developed the National Energy Policy and led Congress to pass the Energy Policy Act of 2005. 
The Energy Policy Act included a provision to reinvest oil and gas royalties and rents collected by the Department of the Interior into upstream oil and gas research. Upstream refers to exploration and production activities, and the Department of Interior is responsible for the leasing of federal lands both onshore and offshore. Hence, the royalties and rents. President Obama passed the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act of 2009 with a high degree of focus on clean energy. The energy revolution became, uh, began in 2006 with the production of natural gas from shales and in 2011 for production of oil from shale. In U- the U.S. produced so much oil and gas that the ban on U.S. oil exports was lifted in 2015. Under President Trump, the U.S. became the top oil and gas producer in the world. 2019 marked the first time in 67 years that American annual gross energy exports exceeded gross energy imports. So we were now exporting more than we were importing. This caused OPEC to lose world market power and its stranglehold over U.S. energy, but not for long. I served a total of seven presidents before I retired in August of 2021, and I learned a lot. Let me say that energy poverty is very real. Our country is blessed with access to all energy types. There are 33 oil and gas producing states in the United States, which means more than half the country is capable of producing oil and gas. Americans should be free to use any type of energy they have access to, but they're not. Just ask the people in California who are asked by their governor to refrain from charging their EVs in order to avoid blackouts. California used to be the third largest oil and gas producing state in the union but not anymore due to their energy policy. The key lessons I've learned during my 40 years as an energy professional is that it is unwise to depend on a single energy source. We saw it in 1973 with oil. Europe is seeing it now with natural gas. And California is seeing it with wind and solar. We value diversity of thought, diversity in our investment portfolios, diversity of inclusion, It is no different with diversity of energy supply. All types of energy should be made available without prejudice. The wealth of a nation is tied to the value of its natural resources. So what is my call to action? I challenge us to increase our energy literacy. Attend conferences like this one. Pay attention to policies that compromise our national security, economic security, and energy security. You can find all the facts about energy supply and demand at one key website, eia.gov. That's eia.gov. It stands for Energy Information Administration, which is an independent agency of the U.S. Department of Energy. So those are my prepared remarks at that uh, presentation. And I'd like to thank everyone for listening today. Please give us a review and tell us what you'd like to hear more about on our future podcasts. This is Elena Melkert, your host for Oil & Gas Upstream. More next time. Join us again next week on the Oil & Gas Upstream podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com.